Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mr. Chief Justice. Please, the court. The idea that you are going to get together with a group of people and really police the rules yourself because you understand what the common norms are that you have to play by, mm -hmm. that's something that we're missing in our society right now. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Welcome to In Studio. This week, we're going to talk about basketball and the 2017 NBA champions, the Golden State Warriors. Joining me in studio today are Life of the Law team members Asagi Obasagi and Brittany Botorf. And we want to welcome Adam Lardson, attorney and writer on Fast Break, a blog that reports on the Golden State Warriors. Welcome, everyone. We just published our story, Warriors vs. Warriors, a piece about the day each year when players, coaches, and managers with the Golden State Warriors go inside San Quentin State Prison to play a game against the San Quentin Warriors on the prison's lower yard. You can find a link to the audio story at lifeofthelaw.org, on iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And today, I'd like to start with Adam. You've been following the team for how long? Uh, probably about 35 years at this point. You're 35 now, so how is that? <laughs> <laughs> Born into being a Warriors fan. Uh, I grew up in the Bay Area. My parents were big basketball fans. Uh, they raised me as a fan of the team, which was difficult for a lot of these years, but it has now been incredibly rewarding. So tell us, who are, I mean, you know these team members, you know the coaches, the manager. Tell us who are the Warriors? Who the, are they? The thing that I I believe stands out with this team more than others that I've witnessed is just the joy they take in playing together. It's a selfless group of individuals who have really put their collective goal of being the best basketball team possible above their individual success, their individual notoriety. It's rare, not only in sports, but I think in our society in general, to see a group of people who can come together like that. So watching them win a championship doing that has been very special, not just as a fan of the team, but as somebody interested in sports and society and the group dynamics of what's going on here. So last night, I mean, describe your night. Last, and for our listeners, it, we are recording this the day, the morning, actually 12, 15 in the afternoon. So the following day after the NBA champions, Golden State Warriors, actually clinched the final, the championship, what was your night like? It started with a feeling in Oracle Arena. Uh, having been to the arena enough times over enough years, you get a sense of kind of how the crowd is shaping up. Last night's crowd had an edge. Uh, there was a, a feeling of intensity that isn't always there in the crowd. 
uh, and the game really supported that feeling. Uh, the Warriors struggled a little bit early, uh, but then had an incredible run that just lit the crowd on fire. Tremendous energy in the building. Uh, and then after that, it was basically uh, a slow motion march towards the championship. I think that the players really had a chance to be in the moment to understand what was happening and watching the individuals, the different stories that were coming together to form this championship team play out over those final minutes and in the postgame press conferences was really exciting. But once you're nervous, I was I was terrified in the first half because they were down, I think, up to 15 points at one point. There were some rocky moments, but Greg Popovich, a great NBA coach and someone who the Warriors coach Steve Kerr really looks up to, uh, talks about appropriate fear. Uh, And that nervousness last night that I think the players were feeling, the crowd was feeling, the fans, everybody, that, that was appropriate fear. It was a big moment. A lot was at stake. The Warriors lived up to the moment. So what what was the turning point? Was it the that little scuffle with West on the court, or was it another moment? I mean, th- there was a turning point, and it was before the second half. It was. I, to set the stage, I'd go back, actually, to Game 4. Uh, game 4, the Cavs basically punched the Warriors in the face. They were the more physical team. They dominated on the floor, really pushed the Warriors around. So the challenge for Game 5 was for the Warriors to come back and establish their defensive presence, their physical presence in the game. Uh, The first quarter was back and forth. The Cavs had a slight lead. They started pushing it a bit. And then the Warriors went with a big lineup at the beginning of the second quarter, something that's atypical for them. They're usually a team that ends up going small. But the big lineup was really physical. It was led by David West, who's a veteran, someone who has been dying for an NBA championship ring his entire career, came to the Warriors for that express purpose to get one. Uh, David West changed the physicality of the game, uh, along with Draymond Green, Andre Iguodala. They were a presence on the floor, and their defense really got the Warriors going. That's been a theme for this team all year long, is their defense is what drives them. It's what makes them a special team. Speaking of defense, when do they announce the Defensive Player of the Year? Coming up in a few days. So oh. Dr- Draymond is waiting. He's one of the three finalists. And Who are the others? Uh, the others are Rudy Gobert uh, and Kawhi Leonard on the Spurs. What's your call on it? It's, it has to be Draymond. Uh, he has versatility that's unmatched. Uh, the other two are tremendous defenders, uh, but no one can change a game defensively the way that Draymond Green can. But, but you know, it's interesting because you say that they all this is an amazing team. They play together. And yet here we have West, who's like, I want the ring. You know, give me the ring. And yet, every, you know, he was a player. Was that, was that calculated that he would take the other player on from the Cleveland Warrior, the Cleveland Cavaliers at that moment to kind of show, like, power? I mean, was that... I, there was some calculation. I think he always tries to be a physical presence in the game, but it was also him being caught up in a moment. Uh, the Warriors had gone on a 22-2 to run at that point. Just an incredible explosion of offense, of defensive stops, a spectacular singular moment defining their season. And I think David West was so caught up in the moment at that point. Uh, he had grabbed a rebound. One of the Cavs went into challenge to try to take the rebound away from him. Uh, he was swinging the ball to try to shake the Cavaliers player loose. And it was just an overflow, I think, of intensity uh, of that moment in the game and the season and everything that he had worked for. It was a pretty spectacular moment out on the court. But it looked to me like he had the ball. I mean, this is this is a podcast about the law, <laughs> and we are talking about a moment that was maybe a definitive moment in the NBA championship. I mean, I'm I'm maybe overreaching over here. No, I, I think that's right. But but I think that at that moment, it really looked like West had control of the ball, and 
who was the Cleveland Cavaliers guy? Uh, I think it was Irving who went in initially to try to strip the ball from him that West threw off. Then Tristan Thompson went toe-to-toe with West. J.R. Smith got involved. It became a bit of a scrum with a, a number of players on the court. But they called the technical foul against West because he made some kind of a push against the Cavalier player? They, they called a bunch of technicals. Oh, they so did? <laughs> West Everybody. got one. Uh, the Cavs got two actually on their players. So uh, the Warriors were the initial aggressor, but they ended up coming out ahead. Uh, Steph Curry hit a, a technical free throw after that because the Cavs had two techs to the Warriors one. So I watched the game by myself um, in part because uh, I'm a pretty emotional uh, sports viewer. And uh, I, for me, it's important to be able to, um, um, you know, big games like this, I like to be able to express my emotions uh, freely. <laughs> <laughs> and that sometimes can be difficult to do. Is in that a also bar. privately? Uh, well, you know, <laughs> it's one of those things that, you know, when you're watching a game like last night, you run to a spectrum of emotions and feelings. And, you know, it's always nice to be able to do that in the comfort of your own home. Um, so I watched the game at my house. And um, I think what you're good at, Nancy, before is this um, – and. Well, it was mentioned before, you know, I think a lot of this does date, date back to, uh, to game four where, you know, the Warriors are basically um, they were put in a position where they were kind of exposed as not being as physical as the Cleveland Cavaliers. And I think the Cleveland Cavaliers wanted to come into game five and reestablish that. And this moment that you're talking about with David West, this was a moment where he was basically saying, no, it stops here and we're going to fight back and you're not going to push this around. And David West has had that reputation for a long time. So, you know, I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. David West played at Xavier University in Cincinnati. So I've been following his career for a long time and he's just not someone who's going to be pushed around at all. Um, so I was not surpri- surprised when I saw him do that because in many ways I would imagine that's part of the reasons why the Warriors were interested in him. That is, they wanted, they probably want to add someone to the team who could bring that level of physicality and bring that attitude to their team. Uh, the Warriors are a phenomenal team, but they kind of have a reputation of being more of a finesse team, a team that likes to shoot three-pointers and shoot from the outside and do all these nice fancy plays. They're not known as a team that is going to go inside and battle around. And I think folks like David West and Matt Barnes brings that extra, they bring this kind of extra presence that um, the team needed. And I think that's uh, one of the many reasons, in addition to folks like Kevin Durant, why they were able to get over the hump this year. Um, but, you know, it was a great game. It was a exciting game. You know, I think contrary to popular opinion, you know, many people thought that as soon as Kevin Durant joined the Warriors uh, last summer, that this NBA season, in particular the finals, would be boring and it would be a foregone conclusion who would win. And even though the Warriors won the series 4-1, to one, I don't think anybody will say it was a boring series. It was, there was a lot of drama, a lot of excitement. And I think uh, any sports fan could appreciate just how phenomenal this team is. Steve Kerr talked after the game about how this was uh, as competitive a 4-1 series as you could have, that the record really didn't reflect how close these teams were. Uh, If Kevin Durant doesn't hit a spectacular shot in Game 3, the Warriors could have entered Game 5 tied 2-2. The series would have had an entirely different feel. Uh, And given the history of what happened last year and the year before, it would have been an incredible moment of everything coming together, the history of these two teams. Uh, Kevin Durant did hit the shot in Game 3. That's a make-or-miss league, as a lot of basketball players say. Uh, So we have the story that we now have, the the dominant Warriors, the the 4-1 win. Uh, But it was a really hard-fought, entertaining series. Mm. Are the Warriors the good guys here? Yes and no. (laughs) Uh, 
Individually, they, they have the reputation of sort of being choir boys. Uh, the, the description that you gave of them as being a jump shooting team, I think, is what a lot of people in the NBA think of them as. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not a team that's going to necessarily get up in your face to pick fights. Uh, but they became so powerful when they added Kevin Durant that they became the villains. Uh, mm-hmm. Steve Kerr actually had the team print up shirts at the beginning of the season that said supervillains on them. Uh, and that's the role that they adopted, that they were this all-powerful team that really had a target on their chest. But they were able to play through that and use that as a unifying factor. So they're good guys. They're nice guys. They're, they're people who you'd want to spend time with. They're enjoyable. Uh, but they also had this feeling of sort of being a superpower, an overpowering force in the NBA. Uh, they all did it according to the rules through good management, good draft picks, uh, building a positive culture. Uh, but it kind of felt like they were cheating somehow against the rest of the NBA. Yeah. I think there's also this interesting tension with the Warriors because, you know, historically, at least for the past couple of decades, the Warriors have played in Oakland and Oracle Arena. I think that's given the Warriors a sense of this edginess of being this kind of, you know, from a not a major city, but a kind of a second town, a working class town. And just as a moment, as they're making this transition to San Francisco, which is developing a reputation for being more of a ritzy place, it's also, as a team, an embarrassment of riches. So we have Steph Curry, you have Draymond, you have Kevin Durant, you have Clay Thompson, you have all these wonderful talents in one place at the same time that you're not moving to a city that is also kind of has developed a national reputation as being an embarrassment of riches. It's going to be interesting to see if the the identity of the team, at least the perception of the identity of the team Mm. changes in terms of whether or not this team becomes seen as a reflection of kind of West Coast elitism as a place where resources get hogged and and, um, hogged in a manner that... um, is to the detriment of the rest of the league. And I think sometimes, you know, in the popular national discourse, San Francisco with Silicon Valley and other kind of financial transactions can be seen as a place, as this, uh, as a bubble um, that is not necessarily in tune with the rest of the country. And I don't know if those narratives will map on at all. But it, to me, it's just interesting how these two things are happening at the same time. That, that's been a discussion that's been playing out uh, among the Warriors fans over the last couple of years. This is a fan base that for many decades defined themselves by their failure. Uh, They were a fan base that stuck with the team despite awful years, uh, years with more losses than you could imagine. Uh, But now they're a a team that defines themselves by historic success. Mm -hmm. That changes the dynamic and the identity of a fan base. And I think there's been a lot of discussion and some discomfort as the fan base has changed over the last few years. Yeah, and we heard things such as last night where I think a pair of tickets went for $130,000, another pair went for $90,000. Yeah, and so when you hear things like that, it's just very off-putting. You know, I think, you know, for me, I've been a Warriors fan since I... I got moved here in 2002 and started following the Warriors loosely since then. And I really appreciated the um, kind of um, just the working class identity the team had at that time. And I've appreciated their successes and the fact that they have accumulated these great resources. But when I read newspaper articles seeing that, you know, someone bought two tickets for $130,000, it doesn't feel like my team. Now, these are you no know, tickets out put out in the open market in a place where folks have a lot of money. Um, so it's not all that unusual. But I think it does... You know, again, I'm interested in seeing kind of what this kind of newfound um, interest in the Warriors by a community with a lot of money <laughs> and how that affects the team's identity. And you know, I think these are important questions about whether or not the team continues to be seen as a reflection of the greater Bay Area, which well, is a very diverse place. But isn't that the I mean, is the team does the team own the team or do the fans own the team? I mean, who who really defines a team's, you know, presence their 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 image because if it's curry and green and thompson something tells me that's not going to happen but if it's the move to a city where 
you know, apartments go for, you know, a single studio or whatever goes for $4,000 a month mm. and everybody's fleeing uh, for more affordable housing in Oakland where they're leaving. Mm. What What is the definition of a team? I mean, when the Oakland Raiders moved, you know, things things that teams have really gotten hurt by mm. moving around too much. So are you concerned about that, Adam? Definitely. I think that the move from Oakland, where there's been an unbelievably supportive fan base, uh, to San Francisco, where some of those fans are inevitably going to be priced out. They've already been priced out in Oakland in the last few years. That changes the dynamic in the building. And your question about who owns the team, the fans or the, the players, and who creates that identity, I think is one that plays out every single year. And it's really a discussion between the two groups. Uh, you look at the players that fans associate with, the characteristics that they pick up on, and the way that those players then respond to the, the adoration in the building. Uh, it's fascinating to watch the dynamic back and forth. And JaVale McGee, I think, was a perfect example this year for the Warriors. He was a walk-on. He was the last man to make the roster. He had been written off by most of the NBA. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal had dedicated entire television segments to mocking him, uh, Shacked in the Fool, uh, because JaVale would make mistakes on the court. Things would go wrong. Uh, but JaVale came to the Warriors and he put in the work and he became someone that the fan base associated with immediately. And when JaVale would come into the game, there would be a different energy in Oracle Arena than there would be for other players. And there was still, I think, a connection between some of the roots of the fan base in Oakland and the East Bay and someone like JaVale who was coming in there working, had been discounted, but was able to make a name for himself. Yeah. I think what's interesting about the Warriors, and one thing I really love about the Warriors, is that you know if you're if you're watching the game, you look out into the crowd who's in the stands. It's unbelievable, unbelievably diverse group of people. You know, you see people from all walks of life, and that's something you don't see in every sports arena. That Cleveland? Type of, that type of diversity. Um, what do you see in Cleveland when you look in the stands? Well, I try not to pay too much attention to Cleveland <laughs> when I watch the game. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, it, I think what's what's interesting is, um, you know, as you were mentioning, the support for the team um, from the surrounding kind of East Bay community has been phenomenal. And I think, you know, you put the Warriors' success in the context of other kind of Bay Area sports narratives. So, for example, a few years ago, the 40 49ers leave San Francisco and go to the South Bay in part as part of a money grab, right? That's where a lot of Silicon money, uh, Silicon Valley money uh, is. And, and being able to have luxury boxes situated in that community was seen as an opportunity for financial growth for the team. And they were, I think they were quite transparent about that. You have the Raiders moving from Oakland to Las Vegas in part because of the financial situation that was being offered them. So you see these kind of um, these financial incentives kind of driving professional sports um, decision making in the Bay Area. And then you put the Warriors in that context. And even though the move from Oakland to San Francisco is not that big of a deal, you know, it's a couple more BART stops, not not it's not a. Uh, there's not a uh, it's not inaccessible physically, but in terms of what this means for for ticket prices, what it means in terms of the general vibe of the of the arena, what it means in terms of the the organization's kind of commitment to maintaining the diversity in the crowd, like we don't know. And I think we have to. I think you know, being a barrier resident, resident, you know, people are concerned about gentrification across a lot of different spaces, and it would be a tragedy for this unbelievably successful team, which is more than likely. You know, it's going to be successful for a while. Like, all the top players are under 30 years old. That's something that doesn't get talked about a lot. But, you know, Draymond, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson are all, I think, 29 and younger, I believe. Um, so, as, as, as you know, assuming that, you know, the team stays together, we 
have the opportunity to watch, you know, a real dynasty play out possibly. And I think it would be a real shame um, for that to play out at the same time that the games themselves become less accessible. But who's going to be paying attention to that? I mean, if, if they move to San Francisco in this huge, beautiful new arena on the waterfront and ticket prices go up a bit and people aren't coming across the bay quite as much, across the bridge to go to the game because it's too expensive and they don't identify quite as much. I mean... That's kind of what's happening in the Bay Area already. Like San Francisco is already becoming, and you know, the an isolated, exclusive community, mm-hmm. um, and nobody. I mean, there's crying, but you know, the move is happening. It's happening. So, what happens if that happens? What? Who stops it? I mean, what's the consequence that anybody cares about if all the seats are filled and it's a great San Francisco team? Oh, that sounds so bad. Um, well, I think one way to think about this is so um, so uh, part of my training is as a sociologist. So when I was in grad school, I had a professor who said, if you ever want to know what's, what, the, what is going to be the next big thing that happens in society, look at the sports pages. And that's that always stuck with me um, um, because, you know, his argument was that the sports pages are really kind of what's there. The sports pages are they're a place where the big social tensions are playing out in hyperspeed. And you see them kind of happening in, in, a, in a way that um, the tensions when they play out in regular society are very slow and kind of take place over many, many years or even decades. And in the sports pages, you see labor disputes. You see all types of disputes happening in very in real time and very, very uh, fast pace. And this is a way of saying, I think, you know, the conversation we're having now about the about the 49ers and the Warriors and the, and the Raiders is really a conversation about gentrification. And while the Bay Area has been struggling with gentrification for, you know, many, many years now, we're seeing it happen, that happening very quickly here with sports teams making these decisions and it's affecting people's lives and their longtime loyalties and, and ties to these organizations, which is raising this broad question about, you know, what does inequality in the Bay Area mean for people's kind of long-standing relationships, not only with other fans, but with these kind of these uh, these franchises. And I think that's a conversation that's not only particular to the issue of sports, but into the broader conversation about how gentrification is driving uh, communities uh, or leading communities to disperse, is leading people to make diff- uh, different decisions about where they work, where they play, where they associate. And this is all uh, just, a, I think, a, a, uh, this conversation about the Warriors, I think, is part of a much broader and much more important conversation about how are we going to um, design our society going forward in the midst of these incredible financial pressures. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's easy, I think, too, to say, oh, it's just a sports team. It's just a basketball arena. How much does that really matter? When you try to identify places in the Bay Area 
where you have the cross-cutting of race and class lines that you have at a sporting event. Uh, Other than maybe uh, the BART train commuting from the East Bay to San Francisco and back again, it's hard for me to imagine a place where you can cram that many parts of the Bay Area community into one building. And not just cram them into a building, but unify them around a passion. And you talk to sports fans, it is a passion. It's a commonality that allows them to reach out to other people. Mm -hmm. I've had the exact same discussion about the Warriors uh, with CEOs that I've had with homeless people in San Francisco or the East Bay. It is one of the few lines that you can draw through the entirety of a population uh, and all their differences that can bring them together. So if you lose that, that's something. I don't think that should be dismissed. Yeah, I think that that's 110 percent right. So you know, in my in my working days, I'm a race scholar, and part of reasons why part of reason why I'm so interested in sports is because as a race scholar, I'm fascinated by how we have these unbelievable racial tensions in this country. But for whatever reason, a sports arena is one place where you can see those tensions just dissolve. If but only, isn't isn't that because everybody plays by the rules? Like it's it's an understood equal playing field. Like a foul is a foul, a basket is a basket. There's it's the one place where everybody can be together and trust that it's all going to be fair, you know. And once and and part of that being fair maybe mm-hmm. is you're not going to take my team away, mm-hmm. you know. Well, and I think to be clear, you know, the sports sports is also a place where you see racial tensions also exacerbated. So I don't I don't want to under, underplay that at all. <laughs> and that maybe that's a separate podcast. But I do think there are these moments, as you were mentioning, where you uh, you see sports as a as a place and a moment where folks can trans, transcend some of these kind of superficial uh, tensions that we often have and focus on our common humanity, our common interests, or or our common goal in supporting our team. And I think there's a lot of promise in being able to leverage whatever that magic is and maybe having that um, extend to other parts of our our lives. Being a sports fan is a lot about projection. You see something in a team that you value, that you appreciate. And I think that that moment of transcendence is an acknowledgement that there are these common values that we all see in these players that we appreciate, uh, these things that we want to celebrate as being exceptional. And we can all rally around those and unify around those. Uh, That's a significant moment, and it's something that we can work from. It's a way to start a dialogue and to help bridge some of the differences that seem to just keep getting bigger in our society. Speaking of um, racial disparity and inequality, that brings us to the topic of where your episode was set, Nancy, and that is in San Quentin, where um, there is a disproportionate num- uh, mis- uh, disproportionately represented people of color there and in for life, as you mentioned in the episode. And so I found that um, your story so compelling to hear the voices of the inmates in conjunction with the players. And so often, the theme that Adam talked about, how that one shot could have changed the whole game and you could have gone into game five with a 2-2 instead of, you know, your 1-3. Um, that's exactly what both the player, both the Golden State Warrior players and the inmate players mentioned about um, one second. In one second, it could have been us and inside instead of outside. And Wall Street mentioned it came down to one choice when he was 17 um, and now he's in prison for most of his life. And so it's interesting to see that parallel on the court. Things can happen so fast based on one thing, but in a person's life 
or in our country, you know, one memo maybe, you know, affected an entire outcome of an election. And so it's just like you were saying, it is such a microcosm of so many different forces that go on in our society. I think sport. Yeah, go ahead, Masaki. Well, I was going to say, I think sports plays this really fascinating um, role in our society in terms of it's the place where we can look at things potentially being more fair than where we're going to be, things are going to be manipulated out of our control, like an election, possibly, you know, like, like when a president, you know, and right now, I think it's, it's very interesting to look at sports and politics and how that um, these, these, these two worlds kind of, um, in a way for me, interact, because in politics, there's rules, but we're living at a time when, the rules aren't aren't a, they don't seem to everybody's not playing by the same rules that we used to have mm-hmm. like for i grew up in a society where if the president said something it was the truth and and um and right now it feels like you know it's getting squidgy but but when i watch the warriors game <laughs> it's not squidgy it's unless you know you decide was that a technical or not a technical you know but but that's like okay we've got refs there's people who are going to call that shot and that's it and and in politics right now it doesn't feel that way and so i'm wondering does sports have an important role in our society right now in terms of giving us a safe place a place to live out our hopes and dreams as Americans or as just people who, you know, share a common society. There's always the back and forth about whether sports is just a distraction or whether there's some deeper value you can find in it. Uh, I obviously come out on the deeper value side, even though it can be a distraction at times. And maybe occasionally we need a distraction just to get our heads out of the other things that we're dealing with. Uh, But there are values, I think, uh, that your program touched on in San Quentin Uh, that were significant uh, for us to think about. Uh, Calling your own fouls in these basketball games was one of the ones that stood out for me. Uh, The idea that you are going to get together with a group of people and really police the rules yourself because you understand what the common norms are that you have to play by. Mm -hmm. That's something that we're missing in our society right now, if you want to take it back to politics. No one's calling their own fouls. Uh, All all the rules are off, and you really enter into an uncertain territory. Uh, The game doesn't function. Yeah, and I think that's a a really good point. I think, you know, for anyone who's played pickup basketball where you have to call your own fouls, it's a process that generally works, but there's always that one guy who... uh, (laughs) Or one person, I should say, who um, abuses that privilege. And uh, it's interesting, as you're you're mentioning, it's interesting how the game tries to police that person a little bit um, and tries to bring that person back into the fold. And we're at a moment now where, at least for this current administration, um, we have uh, an executive who wants to be trusted to call his own fouls, but has repeatedly been shown not to be trustworthy of that. And so we're now in a process of where various institutions and people are trying to rein rein them in and say, look, this is the way things are, 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 this is the way things should be done. And we'll see how this plays out. The, the one big difference on, on the playground, you can always take your ball, go home, and start mm-hmm. a different game. Uh, we're in a situation where that's not an option. And yeah. I wonder um, about the fans, because to me it seems we've become so polarized, it is more akin to rooting for the Warriors or rooting for the Cavaliers. It's mm-hmm. my team has to win no matter what. And on the basketball court, doesn't really matter. I mean, one team wins the game, the other team goes home. But here... Mm-hmm. Winning at any cost means loss of health care for 24 million people. Right. And, it, and, I mean, there's just so many repercussions. You know, so there is a guy on the team, on the court who's fouling like crazy, but nobody's pulling him off. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, because people are 
so divided and in this fan almost mentality of us and them. And there's there's the loss of the concept of the greater good. The, there was a great moment in Draymond Green's postgame press conference last night uh, where someone uh, pointed out that after this contentious series, he had started helping up Cavs players off the off the floor. And someone said, well, what changed? What's going on there? And Draymond said, the owners of these basketball teams are having drinks together at halftime. They're not out there battling to the death. They're not out there trying to kill one another. I can be a competitor and try my hardest to win the game and still respect the person that I'm playing against and recognize that he's a person who has skill, who's trying to do the same thing that I am and help him up there. Uh, And it was just a, a perfect note, I think, to bring to close a really contentious series where there had been a lot of back and forth, but to put it in a larger context. Yeah. I think, um, I think for fans, there's a similar process. And I think one thing the Warriors uh, as a team is that they're, they're demonstrating a, a, a style of play that even for folks who aren't Warriors fans can appreciate and enjoy and like, and say, look, you know, I, I might be frustrated with, with this team and its ability to dominate, but I am aware that we're witnessing something that is just beautiful basketball to watch. And I think it gets back to to this point that, you know, we can be um, supporters of our individual team, but then recognize that there is something greater happening in front of us. We can recognize the need to, you know, help people up, as you were saying. We can recognize that, you know, for example, um, you know, one one experience I had last year during the series was, you know, there was a point in game seven where LeBron just kind of took things over. It's becoming increasingly clear that the Warriors weren't going to win. And there was a point where even, even as a Warriors fan, um, it was like in the third or third or fourth quarter, just watching LeBron just kind of take the game over. I was like, you know, I'm watching probably one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And even though he's not on my team, I can appreciate that what I'm seeing is amazing. <laughs> and I can, I can be, um, you know, I can be hurt by the fact that my team, you know, last year isn't going to, wasn't going to win, but also it gets me deeply appreciative of this phenomenal work that he's doing. And I think this type of nuance that you're getting at Brittany is something that um, politically speaking that we've lost. And there used to be a time um, where you would think that folks on different sides of the aisle would be able to advocate their own positions, but still acknowledge what the greater good was, um, or at least acknowledge uh, the fact that even though people may disagree with you, they are still advocating their position um, from genuine, um, 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 from a genuine standpoint. Um, and so I think the question becomes, how do we get back to that? And maybe sports will be the the, the the moment where we can kind of realize, okay, this type of kind of honest competition that we see with the Warriors or, or any other team, maybe we can somehow use that as a moment to kind of get back to um, a political discourse that is, uh, you know, much more dignified. But that's with the assumption that, that um, LeBron James plays by the rules we've you know most of the time he does. it's going <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting question we could go into it does lebron james i don't know there were a couple of moments last night especially that part where he knocked uh steph curry onto the ground yeah, did you see and steph was mad l- l- let's chase that thread for a little bit okay because the, the rules can be different for different people mm. uh, no not not on not not on the court well, but mm. they, they can be and the game can survive that because there can be Uh, Some recognition, I think, uh, of some people get more leeway than others. It's just a a reality of an imperfect science. Referees are humans. They are calling uh, fouls for things that are not objective truth. 
they're having to make judgment calls and, and there are biases that slip in to those decisions and you have to accept that as part of the game. So when LeBron James, uh, uh, just an incredibly powerful individual, encounters Steph Curry, who's a smaller, less strong individual and brushes him out of the way. Brushes. If you called that a foul every single time on LeBron James, the game's going to grind to a halt. It's going to be different. And so the NBA refs, for whatever reason, have decided that that's not going to be a foul on LeBron James. Uh, the game goes on. Mm-hmm. People play by it. It's something mm-hmm. they accept. And if I could put on my LeBron James hat for a minute, if he were here right now, he would say, you know, because I'm so big and strong, oftentimes when I go to the basket, I get fouled. And people don't think it's a foul because they think as a big, strong person, it doesn't affect my shot, but it really does. So he would say there are also rules that, even though as a superstar, adversely affect him because of how his how he's perceived as a, as a you know, big, strong athlete who... Um, who can kind of brusque off these kind of these these uh these small fouls that he receives when he shoots. This feels very much like the slippery slope. And it's kind of scary that you're saying this. Well, it's all... I understand. I understand that if we foul LeBron James every time he brushes somebody to the floor, that we're we're not gonna have a game. But at the same time, isn't there like I don't know. That just that feels like that's not fair. And mm-hmm. and I want I want that game to be fair. I want everybody to play by the same rules. And 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 if this if, if the players accept that, then don't we also start to accept that, you know, within our political field that you know, there's going to be some cutting of the corners when it comes to whether or not a president can, you know, issue an executive order that potentially, you know, violates the law. You know, it's like where, you know, what happened to the black and white? Mm -hmm. Well, I think one way to think about this is that, you know, this is part of a broader conversation of what is a rule and what the rules mean in a particular context. So if you think about this from the context of judging, um, would you want your judges to simply apply rules to facts and hand out sentences, judges or juries? Or would you want them to have a deeper consideration about the social context in which a particular individual broker rule as a way to think about what sentence they should uh, they should receive? Um, so this is all to say that um, what type of um, rule applications do you think are fair? Is it just a standard, you know, you broke X law, you receive Y sentence? Or do you want some type of understanding of mitigation that takes into context or, or consideration the circumstances that might have led someone to break X law that might lead them to have either a, uh, uh, a well, might lead them to have a different type of, of punishment. I think your response to this as well, of being surprised that, that the rules can be blurred to some degree, is an interesting one because I think sports fans, by and large, accept this as part of the game, uh, really for the ends that it gets you to. The reason why we accept LeBron James being able to foul people uh, play after play is because LeBron James does spectacular things. Mm-hmm. You don't get LeBron James just stampeding to the basket and dunking if you're going to call a touch foul when he's 15 feet away from the basket. Mm-hmm. So as sports fans, there are things that we want to see that will look the other way for some minor infractions because we want to get to the end product. And quite honestly, Nancy, would you be willing to pay $90,000 for tickets if LeBron James fouled out in the second quarter? But I'm not going to pay $90,000. <laughs> I'm going to pay $9. <laughs> That's my... <laughs> there used to be $9 Warriors tickets and there used to be two-for-one deals, uh, but th- those days are long gone. You know, but I, you know, I also think that 
I don't know. This is very disturbing um, conversation because I, 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 I think that what we're you know we're we're in a very weird time in American society right now where there is a lot of polarization. I wanted to answer something you said where you said, "Oh, that was a good shot by LeBron in the, you know, the third quarter last night." When I don't know who on the Cavaliers made because I don't know their names as well, but one of the couple of them made this amazing pass and dunk, and I was like. Mm-hmm. That was good, <laughs> you know? and I'm a I'm a Warriors fan, but I it almost felt like disloyal to say that was a good pass, um, you C- know. And, country and above party, exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. And it was kind of like if if the Republic. I mean, I'm a I I'm I'm I, I guess I can no, I can't say that. But anyway, I I um, you know sometimes I think that there it's hard to acknowledge when you're in a polarized environment it's hard to acknowledge when somebody else does something well and right now i think that's needed in our society and and it's also needed that we we call on it um and i'm i guess my feeling about sports is that i like it to to represent and pull people together so that we do share a sense of of even if it's momentary of fair equality mm-hmm. But I think I don't think there's anything inconsistent with being a Warriors fan and being a basketball fan. So last night when I was watching the game, you know, I think G.R. Smith hit he was five for five from three point range, I believe. And Kyrie Irving did some amazing his wizardry with the ball. And there are moments where even though I was like very tense and anxious about the Warriors winning, where I just sat back and said, you know what, Kyrie, that's just a good shot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's just that's, and it's a beautiful thing to watch. Um, and, and same things with other other members of the Cavaliers. And so I think. And this is kind of think what Brittany was going to earlier is that I think we have to understand this particular political moment as a construction and not a permanent reality of what political discourse can and should be. And if we can find a way to uh, either get back to or produce a new reality where we all have a basic understanding that we want the best society while also advocating the particular political path we think is the best way to do that. Then perhaps we can, you know, find some type of sanity and be able to uh, at least have sane, respectful political conversation about how to move forward. And right now we're such an we're in such a morass with things that it's hard to even think about the world in that way right now. I think that's a really good point, and the fan dynamic is an interesting. Uh, one as well, because you talk about Kyrie making incredible shots. The first people who are going to admit that those shots are incredible are the Warriors, Mm -hmm. the people who are defending him. Uh, Clay Thompson, who spent this entire series chasing Kyrie, would talk game after game about how incredible his shots were. The people who aren't going to admit that are the people who are further removed from the process, the fans, uh, the people who aren't out there on the playing field but have become entrenched in their positions. They are a Cleveland fan. They are a Golden State fan, and they can't get past that. So it's an interesting shift for me to see how someone who's involved in that play talks about it as opposed to somebody back at home watching it on television. Yeah. It always strikes me as just um... – just a phenomenal demonstration of our human spirit is, you know, when you watch a boxing match go 12 rounds and you see two heavy, two heavyweights just pound each other for 12 rounds and they hear the final bell. And what's the first thing they do? They hug each other. Right. And these are often two individuals who are bloody, bruised, totally beaten up and broken. But at the end, they hug each other out of mutual respect. But they realize that they both gave it their best. And even though they were both trying to, in a sense, pummel each other, they also respect their basic humanity and that and their skill. 
And I, you know, that's a that's just a sensibility we have to be able to incorporate and project in other aspects of our life. You can have incredibly contentious moments. You can have unbelievable conflict, but you can still come together at the end of it. If there's a value you want to pull out of sports, that's a good place to start. And so, so we need Nancy Pelosi and Paul Ryan to hug each other after the <laughs> Clinton bitter battle. and Trump, Clinton <laughs> or, or maybe Trump to square off one on one on a court against each I, other. A little bit. Or even just to have a meal together and and you know share break bread together. Because a don't meal think that's they on the that record anymore. or off the record. Either way, because you were saying that the owners like they they get together and and commune during the halftime, and I think that could go a long way for for our own politicians. I must say, watching KD and LeBron James hug, that was, there was like this amazing feeling of like, I don't know, good, it's good, we're good. And uh, the, I guess it's the democracy of sports. You know, it's like that we can, we can move through things together if we play by the rules. Particularly with Cleveland and Golden State, uh, there have been chatter among the fan bases, the differences, uh, uh, the queue, the arena that Cleveland played in was the site of the Republican National Convention. Uh, Dan Gilbert uh, has been politically involved uh, with Donald Trump uh, in various fundraising activities. So there are distinctions between the fan bases, and there was that chatter. But but in the end, the players were able to bridge that and come together. I want to thank you all for joining for In Studio. What a great conversation. And we got to talk about the Warriors today. So that's all the time we have for In Studio. If you have a question about the law or a news story you want us to sort out, send an email to connect at lifeofthelaw.org. Be sure to include your contact info so we can follow up. I'd like to thank Life of the Law's team, Brittany Bator, attorney and chair of Life of the Law's advisory board, Asagi Obasagi, professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and a member of Life of the Law's advisory board, and Adam Lardson, attorney and writer with Fast Break. I'd also like to thank Draymond Green, Bob Myers, Curtis Carroll, Kevin Durant, Lieutenant Sam Robinson, uh, San Quentin's public information officer, and all of the Warriors fans and the Cleveland fans for being part of this incredible process. Special thanks to Natalie Cacon for helping with production. Tony Gannon will senior produce, and Kirsten Jesuits-Heidel and Rachel Kane with Life of the Law will post-produce this episode. Our music was composed by David Jassy. Jim Bennett and Howard Gelman were our engineers for this episode. If you want to know more about how the law works, tune into Life of the Law on iTunes. Take a few minutes to post your review, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Each time we publish a new episode, we send people who have subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law, including notes from our reporters and our listeners. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation to help pay for the direct costs of producing episodes like this one. It just takes a minute. Next on Life of the Law. Many of those most oppressive features were never run through legislatures. They, are not, they were not the result of democratic deliberation. They were the result of administrators uh, trying to gain and retain control over their institutions. That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening. <laughs>